Good morning. How's it going? Um, this week we are starting a new series on Micah. Uh, Pastor Linda explained earlier in the service, uh, in August we kind of have our Sabbath. Um, this is a time where some of us on staff vacation, a lot of people in the church vacation. Uh, time of transition, we just have the kids in the service too. Um, and uh, sometimes visitors, you know, and I was, I was thinking this week and preparing, I was just like, man, it's a fun week to welcome kids and visitors because visitors, um, the title by, by Serbia this morning is Warning, Weeping, and Wailing. You know, nothing like getting the visitors and the kids all excited about warning, weeping, and wailing. Um, but I'm excited about this series about Micah. Um, it, the, the title of the series, the series is going to be called Walk Humbly with Your God. Um, that's pulled from maybe the most famous verse in Micah, right? Um, in Micah 6, 8, you know, Micah uh, poses this question from God to us. You know, what does the Lord require of you, O mortal one, right? But to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Now, the, 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 the Hebrew explains this a little bit better for us because in the Hebrew, what is asking us here is to do mishpat, right? So the idea is, doing justice as, as God does justice, right? So again, the standard of what is just, the standard for what is good, isn't what we say, what we feel, it's what God considers justice, right? Um, the idea of loving mercy isn't just to be nice and to, to be merciful, but it's actually um, the, the Hebrew idea of, of hesed, right? Uh, we've been in James and we've been talking about how we are the agape toy, right? The people who are loved by God with God's special love. Um, that's a New Testament explanation of this hesed, and it's the idea of, of God's love that is for our good. God's love that is working for our good. God's love that's on our side, right? So it's not just love mercy. It's more the idea of loving the way God has loved you, right? And then this walk humbly, which we're kind of, kind of, Founding the whole next six, seven weeks on, right? Um, uh, the, the better explanation, again, is found in the Hebrew, because the idea here is walk in shalom, right? And that's different than walking humbly. Walking humbly might mean putting your head down, minding your business, going by your own way, right? But the call here is to walk in shalom. What is shalom? It's not just, you know, peace be with you or, or peace be upon you. The idea of shalom biblically in the New Testament and Old Testament is this idea of peace, and harmony, right? It's the idea of being right with God, but also being right with creation. It's the idea of being right with your sister and your brother, but also being right with yourself. That's what it means to be in shalom. So the idea of walking humbly with our God is what does it mean to be in right relationship with God? What does it mean to be in right relationship with creation, with our sister, with our brother, with even ourselves? And so that idea of what does it mean to walk humbly, I want you to kind of like write that on the tablet of your heart, right? Stick it in your mind because as we go through Micah the next seven weeks or six or seven weeks, I want you to keep asking that question. What does it mean to be right with God, with creation, with my sister, with my brother, with myself? Because Micah is writing in a time where God's people have been unfaithful. So what does it mean to walk humbly with God when we have been unfaithful as a people? What does it mean to walk humbly with God when God comes down in judgment of us? What does it mean to be uh, to walk humbly with God when we have leaders, right? For Micah, it was in the temple and among the priests. For us, it's in the church and among our pastors, right? What does it mean to walk humbly with God when our leaders have led us astray? When, when the rich seem to be getting richer and the poor are getting poorer and the rich are getting richer on the backs of the poor, what does it mean to walk humbly with God when prophets and priests and pastors and churches violate not only God's law but God's people? What does it mean to walk humbly with our God? That's what Micah poses. And if we rush to chapter 6 to answer the question, we miss that for the first five chapters, and I think probably the best chapter in Micah's uh, chapter 7, right? But when we rush through the answer, you know, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly, we forget that Micah is consistently asking the people, what does it mean to walk humbly with God? Why is this important? It's important because the setting of Micah is that, that sin had split Israel. And we've talked about this before, but it's, it's good to re-mention it because I don't think we can even possibly hold the significance of what it meant that Israel was split. The closest I can get to is like losing, like the idea of you losing heaven, right? Because Israel, you have to understand, wasn't just the promised land. It was the promised land. This was the sign of God's blessing, God's inheritance, God's goodness, God's favor. To be in the land was to be chosen as God's special people. But we're told in the scripture that because of sin, Israel split. 
Now, you have to remember that when, when God created Israel, he wanted to be their king. He wanted to be their God. He wanted to be the one they turned to. But Israel does what we do as God's people. We look around the world, and we want to be not like our God, but we want to be just like them. And that's one of the forever tension with God's people. God wants us to look like God. We want to look like our world. God wants us to love like God. We want to love like our world. God wants us to be as just as he is. We want to do justice as we define it. God wants us to, 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 to walk in peace like, and be right with him. We want to say we are the arbiters of what's right. So you have this tension point. But it's sin that leads Israel to say we want a king just like them. And God warned them. And God says, listen, if you have a king, they will take the best that you work out with in the field. They will take your sons and your daughters. They will levy taxes on you. If you just trust me, I got you. And they say, no, 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 we'll take all of that. So then God in, I think, Deuteronomy 17, turns to the kings and says, listen, if you are king, I need you to be just. I need you to be my representation of my goodness. I put you in this position. I need you to represent me. And while you represent me, I don't want you marrying other women because if you're doing it, you're going to do it and they're going to turn your hearts away from you. And this is interesting. I want to kind of flesh this out a little bit because a lot of times we think about the sin of Israel. We say, well, yeah, Solomon, yeah, you know, he sinned against God and he married these other women and, you know, they turned their hearts away from God. You have to understand the significance of this. Solomon is the son of David. Solomon is Israel's richest king, probably. David's the greatest king. But everything that David fought for, Solomon got the blessing of, right? It's the ultimate goal of a parent. I work so hard so they can just be blessed, right? Like everything that David fought and died for and built, Solomon inherited. But God says, don't turn to these other wives because they will turn your hearts away from me. And you have to understand that not only did Solomon marry other wives, but they turned his heart away from God. And this wasn't just like, I don't know, I'm deconstructing my faith, right? It's what we say today, right? This wasn't just like, I don't know if God, Solomon worshipped other gods. Solomon built altars and temples to other gods. The son of David worshipped other gods. And even more than worshipping other gods, the son of David stopped trusting in the true God. Because you see, Solomon didn't just marry all these women because he was a lustful fella, right? Like that's some of the things like, well, Solomon had a lot of wives, you know, like, welcome kids. Solomon had a lot of wives, right? But Solomon started trusting in his own power. And what God was preaching against wasn't just polygamy, but was the idea of trusting your own political power to make these unions so you don't have to rely on me. Because this might be new to our culture, right? But back then, and in a lot of cultures around the world, people married politically. The idea of romantic love is actually really new in human history. Like, it's like three, maybe 400. You might be able to stretch it to 500 years old, but it's not really 500, right? The idea that I love someone, I fell in love with them, I married them, that's new, right? In the rest of the world, marriages were agreements. They were covenants. You, 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 families made these unions together. I'm going to flesh this out for a little bit. My family, oh, we're not even online anymore, so I can be frank with you. I was frank in the 9 a.m. service. I just hope they didn't watch it, right? But in my family... The story I got told, right, was my grandparents met, they fell in love, and they built a beautiful life together. But as I got older, I started asking questions. Because, see, my grandfather was a polygamous Muslim chief before he met my grandmother. So as a kid, you're just like, well, this is interesting. Most people have two grandmothers. I have 11. This is very tricky, you know? And the story was, well, yeah, he, was, he married them, but that was just because he had to marry them. But when he met your grandmother, he was in love. As I got older, I started studying and learning about my family. And my family's very unique in Liberia, right? And th my dad's side, they were just regular people. My mom's side was where all the power lied, right? Because on my mom's side, right, her dad was a Vi Muslim chief. The Vi people were the indigenous people of Liberia who never left. In fact, when the enslaved people who earned their freedom and went back to Africa and helped start Liberia, when they were looking to buy the land, what became Monrovia, our capital city, was sold to them by the Vi people. So my grandfather actually comes from a long line of indigenous chiefs. That's one side. My mom's mom, my grandmother, is 
formerly enslaved people. So her grandfather was enslaved. I've told you this story many times, right? Here in 96 South Carolina, everybody's like, I'm from a small town. I was like, 96 South Carolina don't even got a red light. You know, like it's just you blink and then you go through the whole town. It feels like Harrisburg downtown, but I digress, right? But that's where they were from. And so when he fought in the Civil War, right, earned his freedom, was living a good life in the South, and then when the, when the Reconstruction ended and the federal government pushed out, and, and because of extra racism, right, America's always been racist, but extra racism, and the rise of the KKK, they said, go back to Africa. He says, that's a great idea. I will go back to Africa, right? And so when he lands in Africa, right, within two generations, he has a grandson that becomes president. So when I say my maternal side of family had all the power, you have indigenous power that's been there for generations, and my grandmother had a brother who became president of the whole country, right? How did they get married? Was it just love? It's the question I love to ask my mother when I want to make her squirm, right? But people marry sometimes, maybe it is love, people marry sometimes for political power and to seal unions. So when, when Solomon's getting married, it's not just because he's lustful, he, David was his father, <laughs> right? Like if you read the Old Testament, David was not faithful to anyone but maybe God and definitely himself, right? So Solomon learned from somewhere, but it wasn't just because he was lustful, it's because he was lustful for power. And he wanted to make sure Babylon was okay, so he'd marry a princess from there. And Ashdod was okay, and Samaria was okay, and Egypt was okay, and Babylon was okay. So the idea here was when Solomon turned away from God, not only did he worship other gods and build temples to other gods, but he put his fate and the power and the fate of Israel in the hands of other governments. This was the sin of Solomon. But it was also the sin of the people. Because if our leaders aren't following God, and our priests aren't following God, and our king isn't following God, how will we follow God? But I want you to hear this, that, that when, when Micah comes onto the scene, you have because of the sin, not of five years or one king, not of a hundred years and three kings, you have this sin of God's people rebelling and not doing God's law, not following God for 500 years. One of the tropes we like to think is like, look at God in the Old Testament. He's just so vengeful and mean and angry. I like Jesus, but, but God is, is just too vengeful. 500 years. Think about that for a second. That's 1522, when America didn't even exist, right? When the first enslaved people haven't even come on these shores. 1500 years when they're still fighting over Europe, right? And Martin Luther writes his first translation into German in 1522. 500 years is a long time that they're sinning against God, and God is patient, and God is merciful, and God is kind, and God is hoping they would come back to him. 500 years! Don't you dare say the God of the Old Testament is vengeful when it took 500 years of them disobeying him, turning from him, worshiping other gods. Imagine you come to church next week and we have an altar filled here worshiping other gods. Then imagine we do that until 2522, right? God is patient. He's loving. He's merciful. But for 500 years, this sin leads to a splitting of Israel. And what was their inheritance has now been lost to them. Judah is the only one that holds on because 10 northern tribes reject Solomon's heir, Rehoboam. And they form what becomes Israel. They call Samaria the capital. The southern is Judah, right? And eventually they were able to add on Benjamin. But that's who stayed loyal to the house of David. So you have not just a split here, but the whole loss of their identity, of their worship, of their God, of their inheritance. And it's in the middle of this that, that the Micah shows up. And we think in our country, we had a civil war. It was four years. When the northern and the southern kingdom split, Rehoboam fought for 17 years. That's four times longer than our own civil war. So to say that people were not taking their eyes on God and to say that they were all focused on themselves, right, would be an understatement. But this is the world that Micah walks into. And who is Micah? Well, the, the Hebrew tells us that his name is an abbreviation of Micaiah, which means who is like Yahweh our God, right? So when he shows up at the time of Micah, and this is also helpful, at least it was helpful for me, I tend to think of the Old Testament prophets as like our U.S. presidents, right? You know, first it's like we had a Bush, then we had a Clinton, then we had another Bush, right? Then we had an Obama, then we had a Trump, then we had a Biden. I try to think of the, the past, like they had like the priests, like the prophets, they had this time and this time and this time. 
Well, actually, they were all around. Some of them were all at the same time. So when Micah shows up, it wasn't like he was the only one on the scene. When Micah shows up, there was a prophet, maybe you've heard of him, by the name of Isaiah, who was also prophesying and preaching in the southern kingdom. There was a prophet by the name of Amos, who was from the south but went to the north to preach. And Amos has had impact even in the civil rights movement because a lot of people who were quoting him would say, let justice roll down. They were taking that message of, we are oppressing people who are our own. How do we represent our God when we're oppressing people. So you had Amos on the scene. You even had Hosea. And Hosea is a call for therapy, right? Because God says, listen, Hosea, your people have been unfaithful. So I want you to marry an unfaithful woman. And I want you to stay loyal to that unfaithful woman because I'm loyal to you. Thank God for therapy, right? Like Hosea, like imagine that. It was how you call. God was like, listen, I want you to marry someone. They're never going to be faithful for you, but you need to hold on because I love you. Good luck. I mean, Hosea is more, we'll preach through Hosea sometimes, so we'll unpack that better. But you know, you get the point, right? But all these people were on the scene when Micah shows up. And I think that's significant. Maybe that's the first lesson from Micah we need to hold on to, is that when God has a message to tell, God's going to tell God's message. And if God calls you to give the message, you better give it. But if you don't... God will find somebody else to tell the message to. So Micah knew the message that God had, and he comes up in this book that we have is Micah telling the message. You know, during the pandemic, I was able to, to really, really read Micah new. I grew up in church and memorizing verses mostly to go to camp, right? I didn't realize it would actually be good for my faith 30 years later. Joke's on me, you know? I was like, I'll memorize this verse and I'll go to camp for a week. Still remember the verses, right? Sunday school teacher's brilliant. The thing about Micah that I really appreciated in the pandemic, and, and, and he's talking about Israel, but I couldn't help but see the parallels. Micah's talking to a, a nation that's fractured. Micah's talking to a nation where the political leaders can't be trusted. He's talking to a nation where even the spiritual leaders can't be trusted. He's talking to a, a, a people who are so focused on themselves, they're not looking at God. He's talking to, to a, a culture and a people who keep putting themselves first and not their God. He's talking to a country that's been built on the backs of slavery and taking advantage of people. He's talking to a people who are the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer. He's talking to a people where he sees doom all around them, but they can't see it because they're too stuck on themselves. I felt Micah to the deepness of my bones, right? But that's just me using my imagination. Micah here in this story is saying all those things. But I think it's significant that Micah, all we know about him is that he's from Morsheth. Right? And so the, a lot of the other prophets, there's way more biographical information. There's more stuff we know. All we knew was that Micah was from Morsheth. And I felt that too. Because Morsheth is a lot like Harrisburg. You're like, what? Stay with me. Morsheth doesn't seem that important in the whole line of, 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 of the, the Israel or Judah. It's just this little town, right? But just like Harrisburg might only have 50,000 people, but we're the state capital, and they tell me work gets done down there, I think, right? Sometimes, right? Morris Chef was also very significant because it was one of the border towns that bordered all the other empires that were on the outside looking in. And so keeping Morris Chef was important. So when Micah identifies from Morris Chef, I get it because he's saying, I might be from a small town, but I got something to say. I might be from a town you don't think matters, but I got something to say. And not only do I have something to say, Micah says, this little small town boy has the word of the Lord. This little small town boy has God's word that he's going to give to you. And here in Micah 1, you'll see Micah doing something that I think is beautiful. He'll tell you what God says. He'll tell you what God is calling us to do. But he will also say God uses us. And he will use his understanding of his world around us to tell out and to flesh out this prophecy that God has. Now, Micah is beautiful because when you read through the whole thing, you see there's a series, right? There's, there's, there's judgment and then there's restoration. There's judgment and there's restoration. But I like alliteration better. So if I was writing a commentary, I would say there's peril and then there's promise. There's peril and then there's promise. It's easier to remember, right? Plus, judgment and restoration just sounds harsh, right? Peril and promise. You know? But what I love most about Micah, and we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, but I always tell that, like, you know, the Old Testament especially is written structurally, right? Just like an email for us is different from a letter, is different from a novel, is different from a biography, right? Like how we write is different depending on the style. And, and so some of the style of this letter is that we put it in this structure where the main thing they wanted you to know, they would make smack dab in the middle of the letter. And then 
on the going out from the letter, they would just mirror stuff to help you remember. Now, why was the center important? Now, I want you to picture, and we've shared this before, right? Picture the Old Testament scrolls, right? They're full up on both sides, right? And so the idea is when you open it up, you will already be in the center. And these, these scholars assumed, you know, that some of us have ADD, right? And ADHD. They assumed that not all of us are going to read all of the scrolls. And if you look at the scrolls, like, in their actual form, not only are they caps locked so everyone's yelling at you, right? They have no punctuation. They're not split up by chapter and verse. So they knew that only the scholars were going to actually read the whole thing. So they're like, you know what? When you open it up, I want you to get the most important thing. I'm going to put it smack dab in the center. So if you only read two sentences, you will know what I'm trying to say. And what's the center of Micah? That God will bring hope to the hopeless. That your governments might fail you, but God will not. That you might sin and fall short, but God is still there on your side hoping you do better. That you might have people who are doing wrong, but God sees it. That God is good even though you've been unfaithful. That God's judgment is coming, but God always chooses grace. That God will bring hope to the hopeless. And that's the book of Micah. But we're going to start in chapter 1. And like I said, to the visitors and the new people and the kids, this is a fun one. We're going to talk about warning and weeping and wailing. Because Micah starts off his oracle not giving you a full biography of who he is, but by just saying this small town boy got something to say. And what I got to say is as a warning, we have sinned against God. And because of our sin against God, it will come with consequences. But my invitation to you is to look not only at our sin, but to look at our God. Because if we look at our God, as we look at our sin, we will be moved to weep and to wail, to lament, and to repent. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Micah chapter 1. We'll have it up front. We'll be reading the chapter in its entirety. Um, if you do get the blogs every week, please read them. We'll try to give you some heads up, right? Uh, we're going to try to go through a lot today. There's a lot to cover in chapter 1. But usually on like Thursday or Wednesday or Thursday, we put out the blog and it tells you to read. So you can read ahead of time so you'll be ready, right? Some of you just came to church this morning like, oh, I know that's what we're getting into. Read the blog, you know, give you a heads up. Chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, listen, earth, all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart, like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes as the wages of prostitutes they will again be used because of this I will weep and wail I will go about barefoot and naked I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl for Samaria's plague is incurable it, reached, it has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people even to Jerusalem itself tell it not in Gath Weep not at all. In Beth Ophrah, roll in the dust. Pass by naked and in shame, you who live in Shafir. Those who live in Zainan will not come out. Beth Ezel is in mourning and no longer protects you. Those who live in Maroth writhe in pain, waiting for relief because disaster has come from the Lord even to the gate of Jerusalem. You who live in Lachish, harness fast horses to chariot. You are where the sin of daughter Zion began, for the transgressors of Israel were found in you. Therefore you will give pardoning gifts to Moresheth Gath. The town of Akzib will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel. I will bring a conqueror against you who live in Marishah. The nobles of Israel will flee to Adullam. Then he ends, shave your head in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourself as bald as the vulture for they will go from you into exile. Welcome to Micah. Let's pray. We'll need it. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that you, our God, is our God who's patient, 
who's slow to anger, who's greatly filled with mercy and goodness and love. God, we pray now that as we go back into this text, that you may help us see. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see where we have fallen short, not just personally, individually, but as a church, as a community, as a family, as even as a nation. Help us to think about that too. God, help us to see our sin and teach us to lament. Teach us to weep and wail. Teach us to cry, to come before you are grieved, knowing that when we sin, we not only hurt our relationship with you, but we pain you, the God of the universe. Lord, teach us to lament and help us to know and hold on to that the God who's faithful, that a God who promises, that a God who's always there, not only sees our sin, but he holds us when we weep and we wail and we repent. And that God loves us and holds us and always calls us to him back home again. In your name we pray. Amen. So the book of Micah is going to start with this warning. Micah is coming over and he wants to tell. And, and what's interesting is that one of the things I think is important to hold on to is that we read this and it's a, a fell swoop. And some of you are just like, wow, what is happening? What's happening, right? But one thing I want you to hold on to is in Micah chapter 1, everything Micah says happens. Everything he predicts happens. I love when people are just like, I just don't know about the Bible. It just doesn't seem like it's true. Everything that Micah predicts happens. Whether you're a biblical scholar or a non-biblical scholar, they all think that Micah lived before this stuff happened. They all agree on that, which means that everything he's doing here is not just prophesying. It's a prediction that actually comes to pass. Now, I want us to hold on to that, right? We've got the setting of the country is split. we got the setting of people who are fighting each other, and they're not focusing on God, and they're living for themselves. But Everything Micah says comes to pass. Why is this important? Because the warning that Micah is giving, nobody heard. He wants them to know that Assyria is coming to take over Israel and to ravage Jerusalem. You know what this is akin to? If I went after this service and went in front of the Capitol building and says, listen, y'all, Mexico is coming. All this land that we took from them that's not really our land, they want it back. And when Mexico is done with us, Canada's coming too. Like they're going to get, I don't know if they ever had land from, did we steal their land? I don't know. But Canada's coming too, right? Like all this like good that we think we're good, Canada is coming. No one would probably think I'm in my right mind, right? They might, they might even volunteer some services for me, right? If that's what I was preaching. But I want to hold on to that because not only does Micah preach this and it comes to pass, but Micah preaches this for at least 10 years, some people think it's as much as 20 years that he preaches his message. So this isn't just me going to the Capitol and saying Mexico's coming. This is me doing it for 20 years. I want us to hold on to that because it's easy to read through this chapter and just be like, there's a lot of destruction, a lot of people die, not a big deal. 20 years he wants God's people to know. So again, when you think about the Old Testament God, you think he's so vengeful and mean, right? 500 years they've disobeyed God. 500 years they haven't been faithful to God, right? They've been living for themselves. They've been turning from God. They've been worshiping other gods even in his temple, right? 500 years. Yet he calls up Micah for another 20 years to call them back to him. Everything Micah predicts comes true. But God sends Micah because God doesn't hope that anybody perishes. God doesn't hope that anybody suffers. And he knows that Assyria is coming and Babylon's coming. So he's saying, please come home. Come back to me. And that's what Micah is pleading. So he gets out a warning that Israel, Assyria is coming and Jerusalem will be ravaged. But nobody listens. And the, 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 the biblical and non-biblical scholars will tell you what, that Samaria shows up in 721 and 722 B.C. And what Micah predicts in verses 2 to 7, it happens as they wipe out the northern kingdom. And then in 701, they come back. And what happens in Micah 8 to 16? They wipe out the southern kingdom. Everything that Micah predicts happens. But God sends him for 20 years, up to 20 years, to tell the people, come back to me. After 500 years of disobedience, he gives them another 20 years of one prophet screaming into the desert, saying, come back to me. But they don't. Micah gives this warning that when Assyria and Babylon comes, the, 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 the thrashing of Judah will be greater than even the destruction of the northern kingdom. See, what had been happening is after they stopped fighting with themselves, right, what had been happening is that the peace that they knew 
was getting disrupted. One of the things I think I pointed out from this pulpit is that our country, America, has been at war for over 90% of our existence, depending on which, like, which uh, war you want to look at. So 9 out of 10 days, I think it's close to 95, 96% actually, right? But we'll just do 9 out of 10 to be safe, right? 9 out of 10 days, America's fighting and killing somebody, right? But for the most part, we as Americans don't feel it, right? Because it's not on our shores. It's not on our shores. That's why we don't really feel it. It's why we can say, listen, I'm joining the military. I'm going to serve my country, right? It gets a little bit more complicated when you're on the ground serving your country and doing things for the sake of America that's ending up in the loss of life of people. Right? It's a little trickier, right? But, but most of us know relative peace. And so even though they had been inner fighting, their peace was getting kind of lost because Assyria had been growing stronger and stronger and stronger. And little by little, it was creeping and taking their land, little by little by little. And to the point that Micah, during this 20 years of preaching and no one's listening, Assyria had started to not only conquer land, but colonized Israel to the point where Israel, Judah, and even others in the area became vassal states, which just means that, like, they had their autonomy, but they were still under Assyria. Now, some of us are just like, I don't know what that's like. Think British Empire, right? Think about how Canada is its own country, but still must listen to England, right? Australia is its own country, but again, still must listen to the crown, right? So we see it, right? These vassal states. Now, they have way more autonomy than Israel and Judah had, but I want you to use your imagination. This is what was happening. So he predicts all of this, and slowly by slowly it starts happening. And not only is Micah faithful, he's faithful to God, and he's faithful to this message even when Israel ends. Right? When Assyria comes and wipes out Israel, he's still faithful to the message. When Judah and others become vassal states and they get wiped out, he's still faithful to the message. I love that about Micah, because for 20 years, right, I haven't been doing anything for 20 years. That's a long time, right? Like after five or six, you got to reassess yourself. But for 20 years, he preaches this message. He's faithful to the message. And let's get to the actual message. Micah starts it all by saying, listen, I'm just a small town boy from Morasheth, but this is what the word of the Lord says, and I'm going to speak to you as the Lord, because the Lord gave this to me. You need to hear it. And he gives what the, the theologians or the people who write papers and no one reads, right? The PhD scholars in Hebrew and Greek, they call this a theophany. And the idea here is that God is physically leaving heaven to come to earth. And so Micah, in telling what God has to say, purposely tells it through a theophany, and he wants you to remember something. Mount Sinai. If you read through verses 2 to 7, that's what he's talking about. And so everyone in the audience would have been like, oh, God's coming down. This is great. You know, when God came down, it was Sinai. It was wonderful. We got the law. We established the covenant. Everything was great. But Micah is intentional to remind them about Sinai, but to call them to, to be reminded that when God comes down at Sinai, he comes down not just to give them the law, but to start a relationship. Not just to give them a, a, a bunch of rules, but to give them this covenant, right? And the covenant was that you belong to me. And if you think about covenant, is I love you. I will be with you forever. I will be faithful to you. I will work for your good, right? It, it's a little bit different than the mortgage covenant, where they kick you out of your house if you don't pay your, your mortgage, right? A little bit different than your phone covenant, where if you try to leave, they're like, that's going to cost you a couple thousand dollars or maybe $500, right? But this was a covenant where God was saying, I love you, I'm with you, I'm your God, I'm going to be there for you. So Micah says, and everyone in the audience would be like, oh, this is great. Micah's going to have a great, look at God coming down. This is wonderful. But now when God comes down, it's not to give them covenant. It's not to give them law. It's not to reestablish the relationship. It's to say, for 500 years, you've been unfaithful to me. For 500 years, you've turned your backs on me. You've worshipped other people. You've put yourself first. For 500 years, you've rebelled against me. And now, you'll see the consequences of your sin. Because while God is patient, there's always consequences for our sin. So when Micah comes down, I want you to hear this because everyone in the audience would have thought this was heresy and madness, right? Like, imagine, like I said, if I'm at the Capitol saying Mexico's coming, no one's going to be like, Hank is in his right mind today, right? That's what he's doing. And Micah builds his case like this. is like, well, don't we believe God's the God of Israel? They'll be like, yes, Israel and Judah. He's the God of Israel and Judah. He's like, well, don't we believe God's the God of all nations? Yes, our God is all-powerful, God of all nations. Well, if God's the God of all nations, couldn't God use these nations to kind of uh, put us in our place? No, God would never do that. Like, like, we're his people. Why would he do that, right? Micah is pushing them to say that, like, 
if we don't come back, we will face judgment. But what I love about this too, though, is that Micah gives the message of the Lord. But then the second half, when he talks about his hometown of Judah or his hometown of Judah and his um, area, he uses what he knows about these places. And it's easy to miss this in the English, right? And it's even easy or harder to miss. Uh, it's harder to miss in the Hebrew. And I was trying to figure out what he's doing here as a literary device to kind of flesh it out. But not only is he saying some uh, judgment is coming to my people, he's creative with it. It's almost like if you, like, this is my best try. I'm not an English scholar, right? This is my best try. It's almost like he's like, you people in New York, the Big Apple, you'll be eaten by worms. You people in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, you don't love each other anyway. You people in Mechanicsburg, you'll be taken over by the robots. You people in Dillsburg, when the destruction comes, it'll be like a sour pickle, right? You people in Hershey, life will not be sweet anymore, right? Like, like essentially, that's what he's doing here. Because when he goes back and names all these places that are destruction, like some people will say, yeah, he starts off with the far neighbor, the close neighbor, and then his own hometown. And that's the progression you see. But I think it's even, it's even more incredible, right? Because what he's doing is he's using what these places were known for to spell their destruction. Samaria, which was known for this beautiful city on a hill, he says, you will be reduced to rubble. And your stones will be rubble, and it'll take another generation to come and build the vineyard. Gath, which means to tell, he says, tell it not anymore. Gath, you want to tell stuff, tell it not anymore. You won't even weep anymore, or weep not at all. Beth Ophrah, which literally means the house of dust, he says, you will roll in dust. Shafir, which means pleasant, they thought of themselves as good people. He says, you pleasant people will be brought to shame. Zainan, which means to, like, to come out and to be out there and be like, yes, I am Zainan, I'm a proud, I'm from Zainan. He says, when the destruction comes, you will not even want to come outside. Ezra, which means boundary or separation, which a lot of times we have boundaries on our borders to protect our country or whatever. He says, when the, the, when, the, when the judgment comes, you who love your boundaries, your separation, and your borders, you will know no protection. Maroth, right? Which means in the Hebrew, Mara is bitter. There's a scene where Moses and the people are going through the wilderness and the people are complaining because the water is Mara, it's bitter. And God says, Moses, okay, fine. Take a tree, toss it into the water, the water will be good. Now, for those of us who grew up in certain churches, I was like, that's a picture of the cross. Because we had dead water. We were dead to our sins, and the water was bitter. But Jesus Christ gives us living water. If you need to believe that, I support you. God bless you, right? I just think God was like, listen, I want you to know that I have control over everything, and I can show these people that I can make those bitter waters sweet, right? So Mara, which is known for bitterness, he says, not only will you be bitter, but you will writhe in pain and wait for disaster. Lakish. Lakish, which was known for its strength, right? So in Judah, you had Jerusalem. That was the spiritual center, right? Like we go to worship, we go to our festivals. Lakish was the military power. They were known for their horses and carriages. It's almost like in Pennsylvania, it's like Philadelphia, right? We don't like to admit this. where my Philly pride comes out a little bit. We don't like to admit this in the rest of Pennsylvania. But as Philadelphia goes, Pennsylvania goes. Right? Like, that's just how it is, right? Lachish was known for their military power. It was on the border there. And so that's where you fought off the neighbors. And that's where you fought off everyone. He says, Lachish, who's known for mighty and fortify, you will be reduced. Right? Because you were found where the sin began. And then he continues, Axib, which literally means deception. He says, you will be disruptive. Marisha, which means we've conquered. He says, you will be conquered. Micah uses what they were known for to spell out their doom, reminding us that if we're known for anything besides our God, if we put anything before our God, that thing that might be good might just lead to our own destruction. And that's what he's doing. It's hard to miss, right, in Hebrew, but it's easy to miss in English. He's telling all these things that you're known for. And what I love, though, is he ends this, right? Two things. In each section, he ends. So in verse 8, a lot of people think this is Micah talking, but this is God. I think it's beautiful that this is God in verse 8. Because the doom has been pronounced. For 500 years, y'all been sitting against me and turning your backs on me, right? But yet God says in verse 8, because of your sin, because of the judgment coming, I, almighty God, will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. Our God is grieved by our sin. And it's not just because we fall short. And it's not just because we miss the mark. And it's not just because we, we destroy ourselves or destroy people around us. But every single time we sin, our God is grieved. 
But the end of verse 16, after the destruction of the southern kingdom, God calls the people to what? Shave your head in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourself as bald as the vulture, for they will go from you into exile. Lament and asking for forgiveness is what God calls us to do. It's easy to just see the judgment, right? It's easy to just see, well, he destroyed everything. For 500 years, he was patient. For 20 years, he kept calling them back to lament. And I love that for 20 years, Micah is faithful with this message. But I think there's so much we learn in this passage, right? Number one is just simply God's going to keep speaking until we're willing to hear it. And that's why it's important to have people around you you love and trust and people around you who can hold you accountable because sometimes we don't want to hear it. Sometimes we definitely don't want to hear it, not from you. But if you're in community, I might not hear it from you or for you, but I just might hear it from you, right? And God will keep raising people up until we hear it. Our God is patient. 500 years of rebellion, 20 years of Micah shooting while these other prophets are also prophesying, and they don't listen. God is patient, but our sin has consequences. And that's what we see in chapter 1, because God is judge. And I think a lot of times when we hold on to God as judge, we just think fire and brimstone and how he's so mean and, and, and harsh, right? But think back to this story and think about this God who's judge, waits 500 years, gives another 20, sends four different prophets, and then moved to tears that his people still won't come back home to him. And I think that's the message of Micah chapter 1 is that we have to be people, if we follow this God, right, we have to be people who grieve sins. We have to be people who grieve our sins. And we must do that not only personally, but also communally. Ron Sider, who's a great servant for the kingdom, said it this week, uh, passed away this week, has this quote that I've always loved. Salvation is a lot more than just a new right relationship with God through forgiveness of sins. It's a new transformed lifestyle that you can see visible in the body of believers. And Mark Vrogrop, who is a pastor in the Midwest, talks about lament, and I love this. He says, prayerful lament is better than silence. However, I found that many people are afraid of lament. They find it too honest, too open, or too risky. But it's something far worse, and it's silent despair. Giving God the silent treatment is the ultimate manifestation of unbelief. Despair lives under the hopeless resignation that God doesn't care, he doesn't hear, and nothing is ever going to change. People who believe this stop praying and then they give up. This silence is a soul killer. The message of Micah 1 is that God is patient and faithful and good and merciful and wants us to come back home. But the message to us this morning is that we must grieve our sin, not only personally, but communally. So I know we're running a little bit late, but it's okay. I'm going to give you five minutes, and we're going to take communion in a few moments, right? But in this first maybe minute or two, I want you to grieve whatever sin that is on your heart that you've committed, right? Like how you've fallen short. I want you to take time to get right with God, asking for God's forgiveness, accepting God's patient and merciful and faithful love that welcomes you back. But the message of Micah is that we're also in this together. So I know we're in a pandemic. I know it's a little bit scary. But if you're comfortable, I want you to pray with another person right? Only one person can pray. If you want to pray after the service, you can do that too. But I want you to pray for something communally. What do you think we as a church, as a body of believers, as Christians, what is something that we need to grieve and lament? I want you to pray for that before God. Because I think that grief and lamenting brings us back to God. This is what God wanted in Micah, and it didn't happen, so Mexico and Canada came. We don't want Mexico and Canada came. We want them to stay, right? So let's be faithful in praying together. Give you a minute or, or a couple minutes here to pray. Do your business before God. And then in a group that you feel comfortable, just one person pray for anything. Anything that you think we as a nation, as a country, as Christians need to lament and ask forgiveness for. Let's pray together.
Amen. Um, we're going to take partake communion together. Pastor Linda will be assisting me up front. Um, also, after communion, we'll have our, our final song. We'll invite you up for prayer. But if you're praying in groups and you want to keep praying, I invite you during that time to keep praying as well. Um, but as we take uh, communion together, I'd like to invite you to make sure you have your elements. If you need help, raise your hand. We can bring them around for you if you don't have them. Um, but if you have your elements, just invite you to follow along as we have um, responsive reading on the screen as well. Let us join together in the responsive reading for communion taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, I'll, we'll read the, the part that says pastor, you'll read the part that says congregation, and we'll do this together. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. We believe that the Lord himself will one day come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. Whether we sleep in death before he comes or live to see his coming, we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We will be with the Lord forever. Another way we are encouraged in our faith is by sharing in the Lord's Supper. In the next moments, we'll be sharing in communion together, celebrating the new life we have in Jesus. We ask that you're a follower of Jesus to partake of the bread and the cup, not that you're a member of this church. We want you to be a member, but you don't have to be a member for communion. Um, if you have the things, just follow along as we now do the responsive reading. We now invite you to come to this table, not because we must, but because we may. We come to testify, not that we are perfect, but that we sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. We come not because we are strong, but because we are weak. Not because we have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in our frailty we stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. We come not only to remember his death, but also his resurrection and promise to return. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before us, let us lift up our minds and our hearts above all selfish fears and cares. Let the bread in this cup be to us the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we thank you that you've come down from heaven, not just to bring law or rules, but to initiate relationship and covenant. And we celebrate with the saints in the New Testament as well, as the future coming down from heaven is you coming to establish not just relationship with us, but relationship with us forever. So Lord, right now as we come to the table, we're grateful for you. We're so grateful that your body was broken so that we can be healed, that you suffered and you died so that we can be set free that you freely and willingly and lovingly went to Calvary's tree, that in your death and through the power of your resurrection, we can come home again. So, Father, we take this bread, grateful that you provided your son as provision. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for being the ultimate provision for our sins. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for your enlightening revelation to let us know that our God loves us and our God is with us. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Now for the reading. My sisters and brothers, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? This bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. Take and eat this bread, remembering he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your hearts and be thankful. the same way after the supper Jesus took the cup which in the Jewish Passover feast is called the cup of blessing and he told his disciples this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me let's pray together as we hold this juice as we take this juice Lord would you use it today to remind us um, of the depth of your agony, of the consequences of our sin, of the depth of your love and forgiveness and grace. Uh, pour into our hearts again, God, um, reminders 
of that love and grace, um, that we would respond to you um, in obedience, that we would submit ourselves anew to you. God, we thank you for this symbol um, and all that it means to us. We, we, we don't take lightly, God, that it's our sin that caused your suffering. It's your love that gives us freedom and healing and salvation. So we bless you today as we take your cup. Amen. My brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? This cup of blessing which we bless is the communion of the blood of Christ. Take this cup, remembering that he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. Thank you. Um, at this time, I'd like to invite up the worship team. We're going to end by singing a song that's pretty familiar to us. Uh, we're going to take some artistic liberties, though, this morning. Um, and light of the sermon, I think it's important that we not only sing, Lord, I need you, um, which is the, the name of the song, but I think it's important for us to say, Lord, we need you. Because this confession that Micah wants to see um, and the lament that he wants us to see is to be reminded that we need to come to God personally, but also as a community. So if you would follow that, you know, we get to that part instead of saying, Lord, I need you. I know the screen's up, it's going to be hard, right? But I believe in you. You can do this, right? But I think it's important for us to sing, Lord, we need you. Um, of course, we'll be up here um, for prayer as well. If you have anything on your heart that you want to pray for, please come up. We'd love to pray for you. Um, if you're praying in your groups uh, before and you felt like you need a little bit more time, you can continue to pray that. Um, but please join us as we sing um, this final song. Let's stand and sing together. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest, and without you, I fall apart, you're the one that guides my
In Micah chapter 1, Micah invites us to look. And he wants us to look and see our sin and how it breeds consequences. But he also wants us to look and see our God. That our God is faithful. That our God is merciful. That our God is long-suffering. That our God is patient. And Micah in inviting us to, to ask God to help us see not only our sin, but how it affects those around us, how it affects our God himself. And Micah calls us and invites us to lament, to be people who grieve our sins, to be people who not just accept God's forgiveness, but takes time to grieve that we have failed and fell short, that we have hurt those around us, that we have hurt our God. And then he holds us with this reminder that when we weep and wail, our God does too. And that when we cry out, our God hears it. And that when we feel broken and helpless and overwhelmed, our God is there on our side. So when we sing, Lord, we need you, how blessed are we that this God we need is the God who loves us and the God who sees our Father, our God, we thank you so much that you have called us back to you. We thank you that as we look at you, we see a God who's patient and loving and merciful. We see a God who gives us chance after chance to come back again. We see a God who is willing to love us and to welcome us home again. So God, we pray this morning that you help us see our sin, the sin that we commit individually, but also the sins that we commit communally and as a family. For where we fall in short, Lord, we ask for forgiveness. For where we fail to do your good, Lord, we ask for forgiveness. For where we fail to be faithful, Lord, we ask for forgiveness. But we thank you, Lord, that not only do we are commanded to look and see our sin, but we thank you that we have a God who not only forgives our sin, but this faithful judge who's our God is patient and long-suffering and slow to anger and always hoping that we'd come back. So, Lord, for those of us who this morning have rededicated ourselves and our lives to you, we give you thanks. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit and the body of believers around us to strengthen us on our journey. For those of us who've admitted where we've fallen short, we give you thanks for your forgiveness. But Lord, now as we leave, help us to be reminded that sin keeps us away from you. That sin leads to our destruction. That idolatry is so easy for us to take those things that are good and make them our God. So Lord, we come to you lamenting our sin begging for forgiveness and trusting you and you alone. That you, the patient, long-suffering, merciful, faithful, good, and loving God is our God. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that calls us back to you and transforms us into the image of your Son. And thank you, Lord Jesus, our Christ, for being our Messiah, for being our Savior, for being our Redeemer, for being our brother, for being our friend. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good week.